Hi, this is Andrea Borcha. And I'm Charles Wilchin. This is Farsta. The Internet of Things podcast. This week on Farsta. We're talking about Bitcoin. We've been hearing a lot about this Bitcoin thing. Hey, Andrea. Hey, Charles. If you're leaving the house. Yes. Like, what's the one thing that you take with you? One thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, Only one. Oh, one's really tough. That's fine. Just, what is it? It's my keys, my phone, and my wallet. Those are three things. I know. But the wallet one is... Um, is probably the most relevant to this conversation. How did you know? <laughs> it's it's almost as if you read some notes. It's almost as if we we did some planning. Yeah. Not which, really. which we might have done a little bit. Uh, yeah, Bitcoin is certainly been in the news a lot lately. But a lot of the stories from the news are really incomplete. And I posit that Bitcoin is going to be as important to the Internet of Things as protocols like HTTP, as fundamental, as core to the Internet of Things as some of that stuff. Nice. And I I think for this conversation, I I probably will play more the uh, skeptic (laughs) On uh, this reality. I have a lot of faith in our current currencies. Oh, but you don't have to choose? Oh. You don't have to choose, Andrea? Well, the Internet of Things, the things have to choose, don't they? At some point. Yeah, and there's there's lots of interesting reasons why why they might want to choose Bitcoin. But we're talking about not only the currency Bitcoin, but I think more importantly, the foundational technology behind it. And that is why I think it's, it's probably even more important to the Internet of Things. Well, why don't we start with a uh, quick catch-me-up uh, introduction of what Bitcoin is for, yeah. for the folks out there that have seen the recent news of the theft of Bitcoins and then didn't really understand okay, why that was important. such a downer. <laughs> Man, yes, Bitcoins get stolen. They get found. They get all things. They get mined. Yeah, they, they do get mined. And they are effectively digital cash. Some people, you might hear them talk about it as smart cash. Uh, but it effectively, it's it's a lot like cash. It's not a perfect analogy, but that is the part of Bitcoin that you'll hear discussed most of the time on most broadcasts. And you'll hear economists weighing in on, will this currency last? And you'll hear people like yourself saying, but what if, what's wrong with U.S. currency? Good old U.S. currency. And there's nothing wrong. That's the answer. There's nothing wrong with it. So it's a new, new-ish digital currency. You may also hear the word cryptocurrency, in which transactions can be performed without needing a central bank. So essentially, Bitcoin is probably the most popular currency right now that is completely government agnostic. It's not connected to any particular government country entity. It's essentially a peer-to-peer currency. That's right. It's distributed. It's decentralized. It is uh, has its genesis in a paper, an open source project by Satoshi Nakamoto. It's really interesting because the underlying technology solves some really interesting computer science problems. And we'll talk about that too. But when it comes to the currency part, it's anonymous, not purely anonymous. Each Bitcoin transaction is uh, recorded in a completely public log but it has no names for the buyers and sellers, just wallet IDs. Along those same lines, it doesn't have the transaction fees that normal 
uh, currency exchange does. Is that right? That's true. So compared to something like debit or credit cards, uh, the fees are are incredibly low to non-existent. So yeah, it, it's very much analogous to cash in that way. You are handing over something. In this case, the something happens to be a digital something versus a paper or metal something, but the analogy is pretty close. The Bitcoin currency is really just one application of the underlying technology of Bitcoin. And that technology is a peer-to-peer system which solves a really interesting problem called the Byzantine Generals problem. That sounds pretty serious. It's super serious. The Byzantine Generals were not to be mocked or otherwise... Trifled with. Trifled with. Sure. In this paper that that posited this Byzantine Generals problem, uh, the story was, imagine a group of generals of the Byzantine army camped with their troops around an enemy city. Communicating only by messenger, the generals must agree on a common battle plan. However, one or more of them may be traitors who will try to confuse the others. The problem is to find an algorithm to ensure that the local generals will reach agreement. So, effectively, Bitcoin solved a problem which was thought to be impossible to solve, which was how to get a bunch of people who don't trust each other to reach a consensus. And once you've solved that problem, one thing you can reach consensus on is who gave how much money to who. I can see that because it's it's a very simple metric that everyone can agree on. And I feel like this is definitely the time in our technological evolution that something like Bitcoin and other online currencies could really exist. Uh, we have we see the rise of crowdfunding and crowdsourcing and we're basically crowd currency creating. This problem, though I just have to reemphasize, goes way beyond the currency. We have not discovered the most interesting applications of this system yet. So mathematically, this problem cannot be solved. But what Satoshi discovered is effectively something that solves it with high enough confidence that can be used for mission-critical applications. Previously, to solve this problem, you would have had to have some sort of central authority. Which is typically how every other currency in the entire history of man has ever been created. Some sort of central government authority dictates and actually creates the currency, the cash, the coins, the monetary value, salt, whatever. Yeah. And and now uh, we have collectively uh, decided what currency or what this entity is that we all share and pass among. And uh, I think you can kind of see the dichotomy between this digital crowdsourced world, open source decision versus the real world as you see the value of these Bitcoins jump all around on the currency market. Because I think the real world is having trouble making sense of what this new digital world really means and how it can relate back to the real world. No one really knows quite what it means. And the people who think about it as currency are probably most in the dark about it. A lot of people are freaking out about it. A lot of governments don't know exactly how to respond to it. And you can't blame them, but there's so much more to it. Yeah. But it is interesting because I think Bitcoins really were not considered anything that would be worth a you know, coffeehouse conversation or considered mainstream in any ways until you have companies like Lord & Taylor saying that they accept Bitcoins. And then suddenly it, it becomes the first iteration of understanding what it is that you can conceptualize this as, okay, it's a currency. It's like cash. I can, I can relate to that. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good way to introduce people to 
Bitcoin the currency. Tell me more about how it expands <laughs> and changes our life. There's a whole bunch of interesting parts and there's different players. Uh, one group of players is the consumers that just pay with Bitcoin and they can acquire it and they can spend it. And it's basically like cash to them. And they may think it's completely anonymous, but as the Silk Road fiasco shows us, it is not completely anonymous. Uh, you still have wallet IDs involved and those can be traced. And all you need to do is be able to break into a computer that associates a wallet ID with the person and boom, like not anonymous. There are the merchants who accept Bitcoin, like Lord and Taylor that you mentioned, and a, a lot of them by now. I Overstock, I believe Newegg does. It's it's quite a quite a few. You can buy pretty much anything with Bitcoin from a whole bunch of vendors, and they like it because with charge cards, first of all, the the merchant fees are pretty high on those, and so a good percentage of a transaction, you know, that's taking profitability from the merchant, which is bad. Also. I'm not sure if this is necessarily intuitive, but it gets rid of chargebacks completely. Chargebacks are a huge problem when it comes to credit cards. Because the credit card providers charge that fee, they handle all the chargeback complaints from consumers. But merchants are kind of at the mercy of the credit card companies when it comes to that. But with Bitcoin, once that transaction is done, it is like cash. It is done. No chargeback. So they love that part of it. There are the miners, and they run the computers that process and validate all of the transactions, and they enable this distributed network of trust to exist in the first place. So they get paid effectively in new Bitcoin. You may have heard of the mining. You may have seen people who, especially early on, have gotten fairly wealthy mining Bitcoins back when mining Bitcoins was easier. And you may have wondered, like, why do they even do it? That's why because they are the ones who enable this distributed trust network to even exist so that the rest of the system works. So for those of you that don't know, the gold rush or the Bitcoin rush is now pretty much trickled down to nothing. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of coins to find, but they're just incredibly hard to find. In the early days, and man, if I didn't have only had the foresight to do this, you could mine for Bitcoin using a normal computer with normal software running on a normal CPU, and you'd be doing really well. But then it got to the point where it became harder and harder to solve these cryptographic equations that form the basis of mining, and people started to run this code on their GPU, on their graphics cards, because those could do those things faster. And so for a while, there were people buying boxes and loading them up with power supplies and graphics cards, and they would uh, be running these graphics cards making the streetlights on the road outside their house go dim, trying to mine for Bitcoins. And eventually, people made actually specialized chips, ASICs, that they could use for mining. And these products are still being sold. But even so, the mining has really slowed down to the point that people are now kind of getting together in collectives and mining. And then you get a, like a little percentage of that. But that's about the only practical way to do it these days. Yeah, so it seems like most of us miss the boat probably on the... Uh mining for Bitcoins. And now it's about trying to purchase them the old fashioned way. But these are only the most uh, obvious players in the uh, Bitcoin network. There, there's a whole nother world that's we're really seeing explode right now. The developers, entrepreneurs, VCs, there are people growing companies around this ecosystem. It's become a pretty popular topic coming out of Silicon Valley for uh, new companies to try to find an interesting way, an innovative way to use Bitcoin. 
And I think that's really where the connection to Internet of Things gets really interesting. I do too. There's, there's two pieces to Bitcoin as we've talked about. There's the currency itself, which definitely has an application to Internet of Things devices that we'll, we'll talk about some ideas that we've, we've had. But there's also the underlying platform. Whenever you have something that can kind of create this peer-to-peer distributed network of trust, you can do a lot of interesting things with that. For example, you may be able to give credentials to an Internet of Things device to do special things on certain networks and know that those credentials are good because you have this distributed system that can validate that for you. So it almost becomes your network of Internet of Things that are yours uh, now have some sort of signature that's uniquely yours and they can go, you know, interact on your behalf in this network. Absolutely. Yeah, you can you can effectively give them permission to do things on your behalf that other people can very easily validate, for example. So now, instead of when you're all important and you have people talk to your people, really, it's going to have have your things talk to my things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's good. Let's talk about the technology behind Bitcoin for a moment. That seems critical. The basis of this is the blockchain. What is the blockchain? You can think of the blockchain as sort of a ledger. And at its simplest, the ledger is simply send this much Bitcoin from wallet ID X to wallet ID Y. The important thing, though, is that this blockchain is completely distributed. It is duplicated across the entire network. No single individual controls the ledger at all because everyone simultaneously controls it. So your little access to that ledger is just the same as Wells Fargo's. That seems to really follow the core philosophy behind Bitcoin, a decentralized entity, one that focuses on the power of everyone in this crowd network of peer-to-peer sharing, uh, rather than having one central entity that is responsible for everything. Exactly. So... Bitcoin, the system, is what enables Bitcoin, the currency. And so along those same lines, if that ends up becoming a successful network or entity within itself, Mm -hmm. you can leverage that same philosophy across anything globally that then makes every participant in this type of network essentially equal. For sure. And there's lots of applications in addition to currency. There's also an interesting thing where because this is shared and because everyone has access to it, it's completely transparent. So we've talked about anonymity, but obviously if something is open for everyone to investigate, then anonymity is sort of secondary. This blockchain, this ledger can be inspected by anyone. It's open for viewing. And if I know your wallet ID, I can see all of your transactions. Uh, From what I understand, you don't necessarily know how many Bitcoins I personally have. You just know the history of my transactions. That's correct. Although I can also see transactions to you right. with Bitcoin values attached. So, but if I don't know your wallet ID, and I think that's probably what you want to happen, then I won't know that it's you personally. And I think that's good. But on the other hand, if you are a charity and you want complete uh, transparency into your financial dealings, that might be a great thing to do. Just say, we are the most open charity in the world. Here's our wallet ID. You can see our donations in Bitcoin. And so it's it has sort of the combination for an anonymity, but also a complete transparency that's just completely unique. Well, it it forces some sort of accountability to the crowd, to the participants. It's it's almost like if you 
have decided to join Bitcoin and, and be part of this digital community that everyone is held accountable to everybody else as an equal and everyone needs to participate in that respect. And I think that's really what you're saying is the core value of this as a larger network for the things that are going to be on the internet of things and for everything. And yet you don't have to depend on me. Like if I'm a bad actor and I somehow want to hack Bitcoin, it, it won't matter. There's nothing I can do to uh, disrupt your Bitcoin to do any of that. But like we mentioned, you can, you can lose your Bitcoin because it's like cash. There was a story about in 2013, one user discarded a hard drive with his private key, which allows him access to his Bitcoin. And he lost 7,500 Bitcoin, which at the time was worth 7.5 million. Yeah, very much like cash. So the same way you don't throw out your mattress stuffed with cash, don't, don't throw out your hard drive with your private key. Right. The nice things that Bitcoin enable, though, is it really gives IoT devices their own wallets. Why in the world would all my things on the Internet of Things need their own wallet? There's a whole bunch of reasons, and I don't know them all. <laughs> but if we stick with currency for a second. Okay, back to currency. Back to currency. We can imagine a world where devices effectively pay for their own services that they need to exist. Interesting. So here's a weird one. So let's say you have a soda machine and you have a, a ton of soda machines out in the field. They can actually know how much soda is in each slot and they can order them to be refilled and they can actually transmit Bitcoin to actually complete that transaction without having to have a human in the loop at all. Except for the human coming in to deliver the sodas? The, the human coming in to deliver the sodas, though, would be working for the soda machine. Wow. Now we're getting back into the singularity where the machines, we, we work for the machines. If they'll give me some Bitcoin, sure. I mean, you know, if it's not too terribly hard, refilling soda machines doesn't sound like a bad life. Your, your machine, I guess that, that is the ultimate uh, entity of the Internet of Things. If everything has its own currency and we're using this currency as almost the gatekeeper to see if you can or can't do a certain action or if something needs to happen or doesn't need to happen, then, then yeah, absolutely. My things need to have their own wallet. They need to have their own billing system, essentially, mm -hmm. because that's how they're going to communicate on what they use and what they don't. Yeah. So along those same lines is the concept of being able to use Bitcoins for micropayments, right? So right now I'm, I'm in the base camp of go US dollar. But at the end of the day... <laughs> Again, it's not a fight. It's not one versus the other. <laughs> at the end of the day, uh, getting anything conceptually below a penny is a bit challenging for the average user, unless you're maybe in the stock market. Even if it's a penny, though. Yeah. It's, an IoT device can only haul around so many pennies. Right. Because they're heavy. That's true. But even if they were to go through a central authority... Like maybe there was a credit card number attached to the device and it right. went through a central authority. The fees on that one penny make it completely impractical. So whether we're talking about cash or whether we're talking about the rest of the financial system, there's not a system before Bitcoin that efficiently supports micropayments. So boom, micropayments changes so much. So give us an example of what the value of a micropayment would be. Why, why would my... Thing need to make a payment that is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a cent. 
Let's say you have a dog collar and the dog collar is a smart collar and it knows where your dog is and it, it wants to report back or it reports there was some sort of accelerometer change that suggests the dog may be in trouble. That, that's a very nice way. I, I'm sorry. I, I feel like you... Why do I have these terrible examples all the time? I don't know, but I feel like the, the discussion with your kids if their pet dies is going to be very complicated <laughs> okay. with you. Let's say the dog collar detects that the dog has gone to Disneyland without you. Okay. That sounds like my dog. So, and, yes. And it needs to communicate that back to you. But rewinding for a second, you go back to the Kindle, right? The Kindle has WhisperNet. But Amazon had to do a special deal with one carrier to make that happen. And in fact, they switched carriers along the way and they hid the complexity from the user, but the complexity was still there. And, and that's pretty typical because you see that a lot in the uh, new, newly connected medical devices. All of these systems all had to cut some sort of deal with Verizon or AT&T or whoever for a certain amount of data transfer, Qualcomm, et cetera. These devices, thanks to micropayments, could actually pay for their own data transit on the fly without a prearranged relationship. So in that sense, if my party hard dog decided to jump the border and go to Mexico, uh, <laughs> then, and, and the data rates in Mexico are different. And the networks are different. And the networks are different. It, it now doesn't mean that no the dog collar, right. <laughs> the dog collar wouldn't have to suddenly uh, stop working completely because she has jumped country lines. That's right. It now means that the dog collar could just pay to the new network, just search for a network, find it on its own, yep. uh, negotiate a deal for how many Bitcoins it needs to transfer back to me, her awesome Tijuana party pictures. Uh -huh. And uh, and then there you go. Exactly. I like it. It's, it's dynamic. It's decentralized. You don't have to ask permissions of financial institutions or networks. Presumably, people who have networks would be happy to take more money. And on an aggregate basis, it could actually add up to a lot of stuff. Because I don't know if you have other stuff like iPads connected to Verizon, but it's 10 bucks a month. Per I'm device. Not gonna, per device. I'm not going to pay that for my dog collar. Right. Like, I'm not going to pay 120 bucks a year so that occasionally my dog collar can, on the rare occasion, needs to alert me that there's a problem. Do that. It's interesting because uh, it almost turns the burden of communication on a digital network. Uh, right now, uh, all the new startups and all the major companies that are trying to create devices that are smart and part of the Internet of Things that can communicate effectively over a network feel the obligation to sign contracts and be responsible for finding a way for their thing to connect. But if everything had its own Bitcoin wallet instantly created as part of that thing, mm -hmm. then uh, the burden now comes on the consumer or the thing itself. It's no longer, you can now invent something that is connectable and it just needs to make sure it installed with his own Bitcoin wallet and then let it do its own thing. And you don't have to negotiate these contracts anymore. It almost seems like Bitcoin is to money what the internet was to data. So imagine like before the internet, if you wanted to connect to something and send data back and forth, you had to like install a wire if there wasn't one or install some sort of communication channel. You had to figure out what protocols you were going to use. You had to presumably have a business relationship with that entity because this stuff happened before the internet. Like we don't remember, but it did. But what the internet did is, look, everything has an IP address. Here's how you send data to and from it. You don't need permission when you connect a new computer to the internet. That would seem crazy, right? 
And yet, if you have a new device that wants to connect to Verizon's network, that's exactly what you need to do. And it's a big thing. And it's kind of crazy. So the fact that we can kind of bring the internet model for data to currency and other sorts of digital property with Bitcoin changes everything. Interesting. I'm saying it like this because I really believe it. <laughs> and I can see that you don't quite believe it yet. It's it's an interesting prospect. I I get the sense that, and, and this is why I would consider myself the skeptic in this conversation. I think there's a lot of barriers to that ideal situation. I think people are, aren't necessarily comfortable with things having the decision to spend or not spend their own or connect in that way. And uh, I, I think businesses leverage your credit card connection, the fact that you've had to register with them. Uh, they leverage that for a, a lot of their marketing, their, their data, their general spying on everything you do. And if we completely decentralize that and things can just check in when they want to, pay for what they've used and move on as if you've stopped in some diner in the middle of nowhere, you pay some cash and you move on and there's no real record of it besides a transaction and a wallet number. I feel that businesses in the traditional sense will be hesitant to that. So you're saying that I could drive to Nebraska and have lunch in a cute little roadside diner and not have the government or corporations know that I'm doing that. Yeah, that would be amazing. If that could seems do that. crazy. It does, especially nowadays. I mean, it's like we're living in the 1800s. We're, we're in the wild, wild west of the internet. You I know what? It. Happily, cash is still a thing. And this is really just digital cash. It's unrestricted cash, really, because there's no borders. There's no concerns about, you know, I mean, that was the thing is you could have cash. And then the second you crossed a border, you'd have to exchange it. That's a great point. And now it's one currency across our entire globe. Yeah. And uh, there's nothing to stop it when we start moving into other planets for that to be our, our globe. Our I'm sorry, planets? Intergal intergalactic currency. I'm sorry. Did you say planets? I did. Uh, just making sure. I, yes. I, I'm expanding your vision. I thought wow. you'd appreciate you that. You really bought into that. <laughs> I was mostly just kidding. Um, no, that's that's great. I read an, a really interesting stat. I think it was in Mark Andreessen's article on Bitcoin, where he noted, so this is wrong, it's his fault. He noted that only about 20 countries in the world have what we would consider to be like a modern banking and payment systems. Only 20? 20 out of 175. Wow. So imagine what this can do. So Netflix, for example, this is probably not a great example, but even Netflix as someone who presumably has e-commerce down and doesn't sell physical things is only available in 40 countries because it's so hard to take money from people in some of these countries. And I think you can kind of see that. I, I did stumble upon a Bitcoin for Botswana crowdfunding program. So it seems like a lot of these countries that do have unstable governments and have unstable currencies and might not have easy access to cash dollars. I mean, it's a, it's actually a revolutionary concept that certain developing countries could skip the entire evolution that we had to go through in other developed countries of creating a central banking system and creating and and the whole back and forth about are we backing with gold are we backing with silver are we not backing at all anymore and and that entire uh, difficult process could now just they could just instantly skip ahead to 
a global currency that instantly makes them a viable consumer in a global marketplace. I mean, that's incredible. You just blew my mind. It, it's, it's, it is. It's, it's, it's like, very interesting. it's a kumbaya moment. Like if you think about it, well, there was the story about the guy at a football game who raised a sign with a QR code and said, send me Bitcoin. And he got like $25,000. But say there's some sort of disaster in a poor country, it would be so easy to just like start painting QR codes on the walls. And when they get TV coverage, you can easily send them Bitcoin without middlemen that are kind of US-based. It's kind of amazing. So micro payments, low friction, little to no overhead, it really changes how you might take and pay money. Absolutely. The the interesting concept of the micropayments is as as you start doing a bit more research into the Bitcoin and you see the value of, that certain people posted that they had in their account. I mean, it's out to like eight decimal points. So I right now, looking at the current value of the Bitcoin is about $440, give or take. I didn't want to spend that to jump into the Bitcoin market, but I could, you know, just buy 0. 0.0005 Bitcoins. And now I officially am, am part of the market. Yeah. Uh, content monetization is is similar. Right now, people charge subscriptions for things like online newspapers because there's no good way to just charge someone to read a story or to watch a video. Like if I could go to the New York Times and not have to deal with their paywall and just it would magically take a tiny fraction of a, of a Bitcoin... You know, you want a quarter to read this article? That's fine. If it's frictionless for me, I would do that. And that actually takes us to a whole another interesting concept of how to how business evolves and how newspapers could evolve and could actually come back. I mean, one of the biggest concerns they had was that if everything went digital and everything is free all the time because it's all digital, you have to give everyone access to it. What do you do about that? But if there was just simple pay per segment of something or pay per image or pay for, you know, th this, this takes you to a whole new level where you can consume an unlimited amount of information just in the segments that are most relevant to what you're looking for. I think at that point though, we'd have to have really good search because I wouldn't want to waste my Bitcoins on poor search results that take me to the wrong article. Bring it back to the uh, internet of things. I think that the fact that internet of things devices will effectively be able to carry a wallet with them is going to solve a lot of problems for the internet of things. Namely, how do you monetize some of these interesting things that come along? Because the model today, it's subscription-based for connecting a lot of these things to the internet. So yes, Verizon could come up with a plan that for 50 a month supported X number of devices transmitting X things. 50 bucks a month is, is a hard number to consider. So we've got this sort of chicken and egg thing where if an Internet of Things device can just communicate and pay for its own transit, uh, I think that would really reduce the friction for the adoption of some of these more interesting devices. For example, in my car, I have a little thing that watches my engine and alerts me to any exceptions. This device doesn't communicate over Verizon or any other network because it's not realistic to spend 10 bucks a month just so that you can occasionally get exceptions when your car's in trouble. Or if this device were to add a feature where it told you if it was stolen and told you where to find it, like a LoJack type thing. Devices can use Bitcoin to kind of pay for services they need when they need them. That enables a whole bunch of devices that in the aggregate would be a lot of extra revenue for carriers. 
and would generate space for a whole bunch of kinds of devices that I don't think have a chance now with today's sort of subscription heavyweight models that the carriers are currently using. And along those same lines with the Bitcoin discussion and and the concept of the blockchains and this peer-to-peer, there's more than just uh, things using their own digital wallet to prepay for services they need or to connect. It's more about how they can connect and interact with each other without any need for us entirely. I guess, so when you're talking about this blockchains network of peer-to-peer, essentially you're saying all our things become their own entities on this network and we have a ledger of what they communicate to each other. Yes, the ledger for Bitcoin, the currency is universal. So we see every transaction from every device and every human ever. So along the same lines, if you had all your things on a similar network as that on the blockchain philosophy, mm-hmm. we would have a complete transparency in how our connected home, for example, all the things on that interact with each other. And maybe once in a while they'd interact with us and tell us something, but really there were five transactions that happened amongst them. Yeah. I mean, your TV could pay for its electricity. And right, right. now, if you have a home, you're, you're buying effectively sort of a subscription electricity package where you don't know how much devices are taking. All you know is that the electric company said you use this much and here's, here's what it is. But if you make that distributed so that devices can pay for their own electricity, you can uh, effectively give them different rules. So for example, you can say, well, the washer can use electricity from this time to this time. By flipping it, it allows for some really interesting ability to kind of customize how your devices use electricity to save money so that you're not using them during peak times. Yeah, it's the ultimate level of efficiency, isn't it? And the things themselves can find the best time uh, of the day to choose to use the electricity. I mean, you could even take it to the point where you give your teenager's devices only a certain amount of Bitcoin available electricity or service level, and they can choose when to spend it. And once it's spent, it's spent, and that's it. And then their TV in their room shuts down until until they go to the washer and they, they do the laundry they were meant to do. And then that the laundry machine sends money back up to their t- TV and they can watch for another half hour. That's true. Yeah. I mean, the, the kind of incentive plans that you can kind of set into place just local to your own family or across a swath of the United States, if you're trying to have people uh, conserve electricity, the fact that you can do it on kind of a micro scale could certainly open up some use cases like that. Well, sure. I, I can imagine uh, the EPA loving something like that. I mean, Basically, each smokestack gets a certain amount of Bitcoin value of pollution that then instantly when they've spent a certain amount, it's almost like the greenhouse amount emissions. um, They gave them credits. Credits. Yeah. They gave them pollution credits that they could use. Well, this takes that to a whole new level because the smokestack itself could talk to the cleaning machines down in the river and could balance each other out. So that way... Because they had a lot of corruption with those credits. Certain companies were overbuying, and that wasn't actually solving the problem. It could help with the security of Internet of Things devices as well. Because this blockchain is solving this Byzantine general's problem, the opportunity to hack a device by sort of changing a single truth goes away. If you have a similar blockchain that's controlling things, and instead of transmitting uh, currency, it's used to transmit other property to certain devices, it would be very difficult for someone to change that in their favor. 
uh, because they'd have effectively have to hack something like 50% of the network that hosted this blockchain for that to happen. It makes it incredibly unlikely. And that was one of the core philosophical benefits of a peer-to-peer network, that instead of one central hub that's easily attackable, it's just spread across so many units that it becomes more of an effort. The fact that it has sort of a cryptographic consensus system built into it makes it relatively safe. Just don't lose that private key. Very important. Well, and at some point, there might be multiple levels in place to make sure that, because all your things will have your private key. So you just maybe need a process for wiping your private key off of your smart broom when you sell it to somebody else. And I think different devices and different classes of devices will have their own keys. So right now it's it's sort of up to the user. But it is really an interesting concept then because if everything has its own key and every individual has their own key, then really what we're doing is creating a world where things and people are considered equals on this peer-to-peer network. And we're all now uh, sharing within, with, amongst ourselves as this universal equilibrium. I mean, there's no more hierarchy of I own something. It's more, this is its own entity on the network and I happen to have a relationship with it for a set period of time and then it moves on and does something else and everything's considered an individual in this network. Your Internet of Things devices that sits on your waist and tracks your health would have exactly the same sort of legitimacy as Wells Fargo doing something with Bitcoin, as the currency. I would as an individual. Absolutely. I feel like this takes us back to that episode we did about whether or not robots are going to want their own civil rights at that They're point. They're going to want a wallet. That's for sure. Hey, money is the first thing that pushes anybody to start considering whether or not something has rights or not. And other digital property. Um, That's true. Some of the other sorts of digital property that Internet of Things devices might need are credentials. You can imagine having different credentials that are stored in a peer-to-peer, distributed, safe, consensus-based way. This could really revolutionize security for Internet of Things devices, which is definitely one of the top problems that that we see, I think, in the next five years or so. And because you've got your blockchain ledger, you can track everything that every, you've got complete transparency, so you can track everything. And if you have a different entity that's going through and doing a simple scan of that, you can probably be alerted to odd behavior uh, sooner rather than later and catch something fast. Yeah, in fact, I, I think with the blockchain, those changes don't even become permanent unless there's consensus on the change. Other uses for blockchains that we thought were interesting are things like secure internet voting. It actually works for all kinds of property, but you kind of have to think of property a little bit different way. Well, I really liked the voting concept that we discussed. I mean, it actually gives the ultimate democratic value to voting, that every individual essentially is designated with one vote from their private key that identifies who they are, and they then get to place that vote. They don't have to go out in public if it's a tumultuous area. They don't have to worry about double voting because there's only one per key, and you are that individual. And if every individual has their own, then everyone can vote. Yeah, it's really fun to think about all the use cases that this technology could enable. And I think that's the most interesting part of it for me. I've just really looked into it seriously in the last few weeks as we were thinking about this episode and even the inventors you know just say "Hmm, we don't know what's going to happen like they literally say the most interesting uses of bitcoin are probably still to be discovered 
Well, that was a fun ride through Bitcoin. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Far Stuff, the Internet of Things podcast. You can find us on the internet at farstuff.com, at Farstuff on Twitter. Get in touch with us using the contact form at farstuff.com. Email us at podcast at farstuff.com. And this brings us to the end of our thing. Thanks for listening. You're over-romanticizing the past. I am, but at least, you know, if that schmuck over there stole your stuff, you could point to that schmuck. 